Hey, this is Mark Patterson coming again live from Sun Valley, Idaho, and welcome to Finding Your Summit, all about people overcoming adversity and finding their way. And this week, we had a super interesting dude. I met this guy on Denali at 14,200 feet. I had heard about the legend of Vern Tejas, and this is a guy that has summited uh, Denali, which is a mother beast, uh, 59 times. Imagine that. I mean, I had to come back and, and, and do that again this last year. I was fortunate to make it uh, June 7th, uh, 2018. I was there in May of 2017, and we had awful weather. And ironically, uh, when I came off the mountain, uh, I had some friends up there and it snowed something like nine feet, people stuck in a tent for 17 days. And it was awful. So I just I got very lucky. And to think that this guy has been through the trials and tribulations of of climbing that mountain, uh, he's he's created a life of purpose around mountain uh, climbing all over the world. He's done the seven summits ten times. Imagine that. He's got a book out called Seventy Summits. He's jumped off uh, a few of those: Elbrus, Kosciuszko, Aconcagua. He rode a mountain bike off. Mount Aconcagua down in Argentina, which I've been up, and it's just insane to even think somebody would do that, let alone uh, put a a parasail on your back and and jump off. So uh, super interesting chat with Vern. It was great to get caught up post our successful summits on each end. And another note, we are, again, being sponsored by VioletsAreBlue.com. This is about Cynthia Besteman overcoming her adversity and creating an all-natural skincare a line. It works. It's awesome. So check her out. If you want to know anything that's going on with my climbs, I've got Vincent now set on my sites in 219 of January. That's what I'm looking at. So if you want to find out more about that, my public speaking, you can find out all those things at www.markpattisonnfl.com. And I've got a couple books that I'm coming out called Finding Your Summit. What else would they be? It's a playbook and a journal along with the e-learning course, so I'm fired up about that. So on that note, let's go talk to Vern. Here we go. Hey, this is Mark Patterson back again with another great episode of Finding Your Summit, all about people overcoming adversity and finding their way. And this week, I'm beaming from Sun Valley, Idaho. I'm back in this glorious little ski mountain town. And we're going across the country to somewhere in the Catskills of New York. We've got Vern Tejas. Vern, how are you doing? I'm very good. Mark, how are you? Well, I'm doing fantastic. And, you know, it's funny because when we talk about finding your summit, literally, it's, it's, it is metaphorical because everybody's trying to kind of figure out their own way in life and where to go and what to do. But I literally met you about two and a half, three weeks ago, uh, on the summit of Denali at 14,000 feet. And, uh, I'd heard about the legendary Vern coming all the way up the mountain. And then, uh, it just as our paths crossed, you you happened to be at that camp when we arrived, and you came over and said hi. And I had a fantastic chat. So literally, finding your summit, I literally found you on the summit on that particular day. Yeah, that was that was wonderful to run into you guys up there. Uh, how'd your climb go? Did you make her? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I look, I was up there last year. We may have talked about this. I can't remember, but. You know, I was up there early May. It was during a very cold stretch, and 
it, there was this lenticular cloud that just would not go away. We had encountered all kinds of snow. It just wasn't fun, and now we ended up not making it, so I had to come back and do it again. This year, as you know, we, we pretty much followed you up and down the mountain. It was just glorious weather for that, you know, two, three-week stretch of of mostly sun. Yeah, we were able to get to the top, the whole whole group. I was, I was climbing with Victor, uh, one of your co-climbing partners, and we got it done, so I, I'm, I'm lucky to to be able to scratch that off my list. But, you know, here's the thing that I, I, I want to get into. So for the audience, Vern is a world-renowned climber. We're going to get into this. I mean, your feats, Vern, are insane. I was doing all this research on you. I already heard about the legend. And really that only had to do with Denali. But, you know, all these other mountains all over the world and some of the things you've done, um, we're going to get into. But, but um, you know, I was just thankful that I got – my second time on Denali, I was successful, like I said, a couple of weeks ago, hit that summit, take the top, got back down safely. But you've been on top of that thing like 60 times. Is that right? Oh, just one shy of it. Yeah, 59 times. But, uh, who's keeping track? <laughs> <laughs> it's just something I love to do. I love that now. Gosh, you know, I, you know, this is something because, you know, I played in the NFL and I've been through training camps and I've been through tough challenges. And it's it, it on, on that mountain. It is the most majestic mountain, mountain range, mountain and mountain range, you know, all around you. And one of the things that just you know it's just hard to get through is I love climbing the part pretty much from fourteen thousand up to the top. That's where I felt like the mountain mountaineering really kicked in. But you know, squirrel motorcycle, uh, all those ridges that you got to come up, um, they're just they're a bear with all that weight on your back. And to say you've done it that many times is just amazing. It's incredible. Well, it's not quite the same kind of workout that you get in the NFL, but at the same, uh, in the same breath, it is uh, very strenuous, as you now know. Once you get into a particular level of fitness, it's actually easier to stay there by continuing to climb than it is to stop and start. So for me, I've been training all my life for Denali, and it seems like uh, it's it's been working out for me. <laughs> so, how, how did you get into to mountain climbing? As I'm reading your story, you know, you you grew up in Portland, Oregon, and then ultimately you ended up going up to work on the Alaska Pipeline and some Alaskan telecom. But what was that pull for you that got you into mountains, into the mountains? Well, even though I was born in Portland at a very early age. Uh, my, my family moved to Texas. So I grew up on the flattest part of Texas, the Gulf Coast, right outside of Houston. It's so flat there, Mark, they can actually raise sugarcane. That needs a lot of water. It has to be very flat. So I grew up without mountains. And because of that, I think I had this, this strong desire to, to test myself, to go someplace where it, you didn't just walk on a flat field. You actually had to had to expend some energy to get anywhere you're going. And so for me, uh, mountains uh, were calling, and I ended up uh, going to Colorado at a very early age and found out that that indeed was uh, something I really enjoyed, being out in the great wilderness, uh, testing myself, uh, challenging myself in a natural environment. And so at a young age, I think I was 19, I hitchhiked all the way up to Alaska, and fell in love with Denali uh, the day I met her, actually. 
the third day of the saint, I was able to cast my eyes on the most beautiful sight in the world, and I've been going back ever since then. Uh, it took me five years to learn enough about mountaineering that I could climb it without uh, getting killed. But once once I actually succeeded in getting to the summit, I've been returning every year since. I mean, that's just an incredible streak. So you you you, you kind of planted your stake, so to speak, uh, in the mountain and became a mountain guide uh, and a mountain rescue uh, person that would go up and, and help others. But it, did you know that – did you did – because – Here's the one thing that, that, that I was blown away. You know, there's so many people that go up there, they struggle, and it's the hardest thing they've ever done. And, you know, you're kind of just walking up there. You've been up there so many different times with so many different people. And you're how old now? You're 60 what? 65. Yeah, and you're, you know, it's just like I, I think this is a great lesson for a lot of people that people who truly find their purpose in life and they're doing what they feel like they were meant to do. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it, you look like you're about, you know, 30 years old. You know, you're in fantastic shape, and you're happy, and you're not crammed behind a desk, and, and you're truly doing, you know, something very purposeful. And I think it was really cool to engage with you and kind of see, and you walked away, and we are like, God, this, this guy is amazing. I mean, th- think, look how, you know, great he looks. For 65, you know, comparing you to, I guess, the other people who just let their bodies deteriorate because they stopped moving. Yeah, I, I think the big trick for me, Mark, was I got to follow my passion. And and when you follow your passion, you're you're compelled on a different level. It's not work. It becomes a lifestyle. And for me, uh, to be in the mountains is my happy place. And uh, the, the be able to climb Denali now for so many years. I started when I was 25. Uh, so you can see there's a four decades of climbing up there. It's something I'll keep doing as long as I can. It's just, uh, for me, it's, I was fortunate to be able to find an occupation that allowed me to be in the mountains and particularly on Denali. Well, um, obviously, you've been recognized by a lot of your peers, a lot of younger guys who, you know, for the most part, you know, kind of a younger man's sport, but you've been able to um, thrive in that environment by keeping yourself in shape and your, your knowledge of the mountains and how to stay, stay safe with your with your various clients. But the night era in 2002, Sports Illustrated named you one of the top 50 Alaskan athletes of the 20th century, which is pretty cool. <laughs> it was quite an honor to be recognized at that level. Uh, I grew up with Sports Illustrated. Uh, my father was an Olympic swim coach. And uh, to be honored by that particular magazine uh, while he was still alive, definitely one of the highlights of my life. So he could actually see that I made the grade. He wanted me to be a, a swimmer, of course. But uh, you know how life is and uh, kids are. Uh, I decided to go in a different direction entirely. But to... To be honored as an athlete by Sports Illustrated uh, definitely was uh, uh, a fantastic honor. I, I just there's no other way to look at it in my life that uh, one of the top athletes of the century was quite an honor. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't in that um, particular edition, of course, because I was playing football. But I was I was very fortunate to be graced somewhere in a variety of different articles, five different times in Sports Illustrated. And you know the thing about the magazine business is is 
you know, kind of going on the other end of the, of the, uh, I guess the, the, where magazines are going, which, cause everything's going online, right? And so that business is not as thriving as it used to be, but, I mean, that used to be the magazine, the journal that everybody would go to to get their sports content. So it's really cool that they, that they actually recognize you. I was high, climbing with another guy, a uh, number of different expeditions, Mike Hamill, who you know, and I had never been in the Himalaya. You have, and we'll get into that in a minute. But in his opinion, he said that the Alaskan mountain range is much more scenic to him and majestic than the Himalaya. Do you, do you see the same thing? After climbing in both for many years, I am still very much in love with Alaska. Uh, the mountains there seem wilder, more remote. You know, bigger glaciation, really. Like the Hilton Glacier that you and I both walked up a couple of weeks ago, it's bigger than anything in the Himalayas. It's, it's a huge glacier in itself, and it's just one of many. So it's it's a real, I guess, I'm, I'm grateful for the... The luck or the fortune or God's blessing to have been able to find a place I really love. And then after traveling all over the world, I've been to every continent many times. I, I keep coming back and going, like, people always ask me, what's your favorite mountain? And I'm still in love with Denali. It's still my first love and my strongest love. It's just been wonderful to be able to, to climb it and share it with many, many other people. Well, to put this in perspective for the for the listener, um, Denali Mountain Range um, National Park is six million acres, which is insane. It, it's it's the size of Massachusetts. So, and that's just the Denali National Park. So, you're not even talking about you know Anchorage and some of the other towns up there. Um, it's just remarkable that the, the actual scope and size. So. Let's get into some of these crazy things that you've done, you know, as you've gone around the world. The first thing, and this might be more than than what I found, but at the time when this was published and what I read, you've done the seven summits, which are the highest peaks on each continent I'm trying to do ten times. You've circled those at least ten times. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, some of them many more times, like Denali, almost 60 times now. Uh, the highest mountain in Antarctica, out in Benson. I've done that over 40 times, uh, many times on the top of the highest point in South America, Aconcagua, over 30 times. Same thing for the highest mountain in Europe, Elvis, where I'm going. Uh, the guy uh, just in two weeks, I'll be over there in Russia to guide that twice. Yep. I've done that over over 40 times. So it's it's for me, it's it's part of my job, but it's also it's my it's my passion. So I'm I'm very fortunate to have been able to climb everything at least ten times. The highest point on each mountain at least ten times, but some of them many, many more times. And and how do you stack Everest compared to Denali? Well, it is it's not exactly apples and apples. It's uh the altitude of Everest is definitely uh something that is Far and beyond anything we've run into in, on Denali. And because of that, it, it actually is more dangerous because you're actually climbing with very little oxygen. When you get to the top, you're working with one third of the amount of oxygen that your body's normally used to working with. So you're, you're actually dying from the, from the high camp to the top, they call it the death zone for good reason. You're, you're actually dying, but you're, 
you're doing it in slow motion, so hopefully you get to the top and back down before it actually gets you. So for me, Everest is much more dangerous, but uh, I think Denali is way more work. There's no porters, the distances are greater, the weather's every bit as severe, and I think even more so we don't get the kind of snow uh, that on Everest that you get on Denali. It's, you just, it's way more work for Denali. And because of that, uh, I feel that it's the best training ground for me, uh, before I go anywhere in the Himalayas is to have climbed Denali a dozen times before I ever went to the Himalayas. It's just a real, a real step up. It, it was a, a skill level that meant that I could handle pretty much anything that was thrown at me by the Himalayas. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I really, that's why I, I was saying to you before, I didn't know what your answer was going to be, of course, um, right now, but I really felt as though that once we got um, at that 14,000-foot camp and everything kind of going up on the fixed line, and then up to 17, and then, of course, from 17 to the summit, 20,000-plus, 20, you know, to me, that was real mountaineering, and that was super fun to me. And, um, you know, luckily we had had the right kind of weather. But on Everest, going back there for a moment, and I want to bounce back to back to a Denali for a sec before going to some of these other mountains. But on Everest, have you had, you know, situations where there's been a lot of adversity for the people that you've been guiding to the top of that mountain? Um, or have most of your summits, Attempts, expeditions, have they gone according to plan? Oh, there's always, you know, things that are unexpected that have come up. People get sick, avalanches come down, uh, crevasses uh, open up and swallow the, the bridging ladder that you were on. <laughs> Some of the biggest challenges is just when people get sick up high, it's really important to get them back to the lower levels where there's more oxygen because everything is so dependent on oxygen as the basis of life for us uh, that getting people down, and that becomes quite an ordeal, getting somebody through the ice hole, through the, the south side of Everest, which is uh, where most people climb, has actually got a very dangerous section called the Kungu Ice Hole, and to take somebody through there who's debilitated is very challenging. Even if they're ambulatory, if they're not all together with it with it in, in their head, if their consciousness level has been lowered, then they can be at risk uh, every ladder, every time you cross the river, and that, that becomes uh, quite taxing and quite slow to get down safely. However, if you guys non-ambulatory, if he's actually in a ladder and you've got to carry him, then you've got to get him and the litter carriers across the same ladders, across the same crevasses at the same time, and then it becomes an ordeal. So recently, uh, they've been able to do much more with helicopters. Now, helicopters can fly that high. But some of the, the big challenges were in the past were, were getting people off the mountain down through the Kungu Ice Fall. Yeah, now, have you always got it without Alpine Ascent on most of these expeditions um, that you've been doing? I've been with Alpine Ascent for 28 years now, so um, most of my climbing history of the, my four decades has been spent on almost three of those decades with Alpine Ascent. Great people, they hold a pretty high standard of being conservative and safe, and for me, that's that's the kind of people I want to work with, is the ones who value uh, us getting back more than the summit, so that's 
always been high on my list. Yeah, no, I know. I've, um, look, I, I've been on a number of different expeditions with different, different companies. And I would have to say Alpine Ascent this last year, you know, I just got off again a couple, couple weeks ago of Denali. Probably my best experience I've had in terms of the organization, the, the attention to detail, um, food, you know, a bunch of t- things that really matter, you know, at the end of the day. Sometimes you just don't really think about it until you're, until you're up there and you're in it. And for sure, I want to talk to you further about my Vincent and, and, uh, Everest, you know, expeditions coming up in the next year and a half. So, yeah, so that's that. You know, I also, another guy here in Sun Valley that I'm, I'm friends with, I've climbed with, uh, Ed Beasters, you know, as you know, he's done a number of, of expeditions all over the world with no oxygen. I had a chat with him on a pack, podcast a while ago, and, you know, he was part of that whole 1996 in the thin air rescue when all those guys got into two major problems up there. And, and, you know, unfortunately, they went up in the superstorm and, um, and he chose to go down, and, and it was just an intuition that he had that the weather wasn't quite right. And then when he actually summited after all those guys left the mountain, it was Bluebird Day. And, it, you know, it's just unfortunate that those guys decided to, to make a bad choice and, and climb in weather that they, they shouldn't have been in and also go beyond the turnaround time and then running out of oxygen. And people ask me, like, Mark, are you scared of the mountains? Um and I hear about all these accidents, and I and and for me, in my perspective, I'm interested in hearing what yours is. Is that it's usually just bad luck, you know? An avalanche comes down, like it did uh, a couple of years ago on Everest, which happens, you know. I mean, where wipes out Camp One Base Camp, and that once every blue moon, or it's just bad judgment, you know. Or, you know, people aren't don't put themselves in the right position. It just seems like you know every single one of my expeditions. There's always a weak link who think they can be on a mountain. They don't prepare themselves in the right way, and they end up just wobbling to the top or getting sick or just not shouldn't be on that mountain in the first place. But what what is your experience in that? Do you do you agree with that, or do you just? I mean, what's your view of the world in terms of you know the danger that the mountains bring? Well, mountains are risky. There's no denying that. Uh, there are different risks, though, as you mentioned. There's the ones that your decisions create, and there's the ones that the mountain conditions create. To me, to, to make bad decisions in that uh, be the risk is something that, that good guiding is all about. We're trying to make decisions that lead to positive outcomes. I think uh, in the disaster of 96, there's ample evidence that many decisions were poorly made, and I think it's because of the competition uh, that was going on between a couple of different companies. They made bad choices. Uh, theoretically, they would have made great sense financially, but it, it was very poor things going on uh, on the mountain itself, which is where it really counted. Uh, so, I, you know, that's, that's lamentable, and that's something we can learn from, I think, it's still being studied in many of the schools today. Uh, I know a lot of business schools actually use that catastrophe, if you will, uh, as studying leadership or lack thereof. So I think there's people learning from it in the business world, but there's every guide has taken home some bit of learning, some choice bit of uh, wisdom from 
watching fellow guides die up there. And I mean, certainly some of the climbers did too, but the, you know, there's more guides actually died on that mountain at that time than, than, than the climbers. So it was, uh, very, uh, very educational in a very, uh, sad, gruesome way. The other choices, uh, or the other risks such as the avalanche that came down and swept through base camp, I mean, no one could have ever predicted that. And that's one of the risks that you just have to say mountains uh, are dangerous places. Uh, as the ocean can be a dangerous place, as the jungle can be a dangerous place, as a desert can be a dangerous place. We take the knowledge of the mountains and knowing that, you know, avalanches can happen, earthquakes can happen. That was an avalanche that was triggered by an earthquake. Those things, we just have to guess, guess whether or not that's going to happen while we're in the mountains. And I don't think anybody could have predicted that. It did have devastating outcome, but, uh, you know, when you die, knowing what the odds are, you decide to go there because you love the beauty, you love the challenge, and you're going to give it your best shot and hopefully nothing goes wrong. I think that's a, a lot more admirable than making several bad choices in a row and perishing because of that. So for me, there's, there's two different kinds of risks there. There's the subjective human risk of making poor decisions, and then there's just the risk of being in the mountains. You know, things things come down. You know, all the mountains are going to be level one day. You just don't want to be there when they're they're in the leveling process. Yeah, you know, you talked about mitigating risk, and I really agree with that. Not too long ago, I had Laird Hamilton, big wave surfer on the pod, and you know, he's got a you know a crazy story with you know he really introduced taking jet skis and riding in to these gigantic waves, you know, I think he rode the first 100-foot wave in Tahiti, and the way he trains, and I've trained up at his house before with those guys, and, you know, they're, we've got 35-pound weights in each hand jumping into a pool that sink us to the bottom, and then bouncing, you know, up and down and really working on that breath. And so much about oh. mountain climbing is is really breathing, breathing in and breathing out and trying to put more oxygen um, into your system so you reduce the risk of, of mountain sickness and those things. But, you know, even though he's, you know, in the water underneath and guys like you are, are above the surface and high in the mountains, it's the same thing in terms of really understanding that there is danger out there um, and then turning it around. And like, like you said, the, the objective and the subjective about putting yourself in the best position of success. One of the things that um, you and I talked about, uh, but I read more detail, you became the first guy to do a uh, winter ascent and summit on Denali. And so <laughs> to walk me through this, like, why would you ever, I mean, Denali, like you said, I mean, I was up there in May of last year, and there's minus 60 degree weather, and that's like, you know, coming in the best season possible. And now you're going into a environment that, is dark about, you know, 18 hours of the day and, you know, brutal weather, brutal temperatures. And you were talking about strapping a ladder, you know, around your waist to mitigate if you fell into a crevasse. Obviously, you're the only guy out there. Explain how that all went down. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Several people had tried to envision what would happen if you fell in a crevasse and you weren't tied to somebody else all the outcomes are pretty negative. So some people had done some uh, 
some looking into, you know, trying to tie myself to a pole vault pole, something very strong and rigid. Another guy, actually a Japanese fellow, Naomi Yamura, great Japanese climber, took very large bamboo poles with him. A friend of mine actually built uh, a very complex contraption out of aircraft aluminum. This is all the, the understanding is if you fall in the crevasse, you want something to to keep you from going all the way down to the bottom. So the idea was to have some kind of device to bridge across the top of the crevasse. So I, I must explain for our audience that typically in the wintertime, it snows and it blows, and when the snow blows across the top of the crevasse, eventually it seals over and becomes quite invisible. There's a bridge. goes the whole length of the crevasse, and the whole thing is covered. So it's a booby trap just waiting for you some poor fool to step on it and pop through into what we call the dark room. The idea with the ladder was to create something that not only would keep me from falling in, but would give me, allow me something that I then could crawl across to the side of the crevasse and then be on the side of it and uh, hopefully live through the ordeal. Ladder, because I didn't have the money for a very sophisticated uh, aluminum contraption, I didn't have access to bamboo, so I I thought, you know, how, what, what is there that I can easily afford and is strong enough to hold my weight if I fall sideways on it. And that turned out to be an aluminum ladder, which I still have today. Clean the gutters with it up, up in Alaska. <laughs> but uh, awesome. the idea was that if I were to drop through, it would span across the crevasse, and then I'd be able to crawl out on the on the rungs of the ladder in a horizontal position. Fortunately, I had very large skis that were also very strong, and the one crevasse that I actually uh, did open the the bridge, um, and that it you know, totally skiing along, everything's white, everything's flat, and all of a sudden a black crack goes out from underneath my skis in both directions, two feet wide and 50 feet long. I would have gone to the bottom head and not been for my skis. Uh, I was able to then levitate <laughs> off that thing very quickly. I had so much adrenaline when I saw that open up. And I was able to, to actually jump with my ladder on, with my pack on, with the sled behind me, over the crevasse, and I survived without actually having either of it. So the the, the 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 temperature up there in the winter, I, I can't imagine. I know they've been as much as 100 below. There's a great book, 90 or 100 below. I can't remember the exact title. But for you, uh, you'd climb. When I say day, it's really kind of night because you're. it's so dark up there, but... Uh, what what did you do in terms of at night? Um, you know, of course, when we were just up there, we'd pitch a tent on the surface, and that's what we would do. I can't imagine you were pitching a tent um, during that kind of crazy environment. So what would you do? The big challenge, of course, is is the cold. Uh, the dark is, is difficult to work with. The headlights are good for that. The challenge of camping in the cold is, is tremendous. It could be, as you were saying, 60, 80, 100 below. Uh, the name of that book actually was minus 148. That was the end of the wind chill chart for the wind and the temperature they had. They just they just quoted the, the wind chill chart, minus 148. It was written by one of my heroes, Art Davison. They experienced those kind of conditions on their summit attempt. I knew that that was a possibility, and I knew that for me, I could not endure those kind of temperatures. They had to dig a 
a snow cave. And that's basically what I learned from that book was you need to get underground. It can be, let's just say, 60 below air temperature. But if you get underneath the snow surface, you dig yourself a snow trench or snow cave, you're then very, very much insulated from that 60 below weather. And you can actually get the interior of the interior of the of the snow shelter can be as much as thirty degrees above zero. You don't want to get any higher than that, of course, because then it starts melting. But thirty degrees above zero as opposed to sixty below, that's ninety degree difference. And you can quite easily cook, repair your clothing, exercise, do all those things in the snow cave without actually having to endure the tremendous uh, challenge of the temperature because uh, snow, as you probably know, is very porous and those little air pockets between the the stellar dendrites of each snowflake actually acts as uh, the air that was trapped in down. Uh, it's an insulation and it's a very good insulator. And because of that, the temperature is hugely different than the outside. Yeah, that's just insane. I mean, anybody listening to think that, you know, you could, you would even want to attempt, um, in, in those types of conditions, <laughs> like you're, you're half insane. But that's also what drives you. And like you said, you've always had a great love of uh, the great state of Alaska in that mountain range. Okay. So let's, let's zip down to, uh, South America. I've also climbed Aconcagua one time, not 30. I think you said it was something <laughs> like that, but, but, Over. um, right. But the, yeah, the thing, yeah, it was times. But the, the thing that I was reading about that I was just like, "Holy smokes!" is is when you took a mountain bike to the top. I mean, I had my pack on and we're going forward, and you know, I thought that whatever amount of pounds I was carrying at the top was was you know was impressive. You know, now I hear that you've got a a, a mountain bike. You're pulling that thing to the top, and then you rode that thing all the way down. I mean, wh- where did that come from? <laughs> well, it's mixing uh, it's mixing two things that I love together. I love the mountain bike. It's very good for your legs, great for climbing. Uh, and then, of course, I love mountain It just made sense to try to do something that no one else had done before, which was to ride my bike down. Uh, the highest mountain in the western hemisphere. You know, it's almost 23,000 feet tall. It's much higher than Denali. And uh, it's, I, some people think I'm a little bit crazy, and I guess that would be kind of proof of it. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it, it, was, it was great fun. Uh, I loved doing it. Uh, I don't think I'll ever do it again. A lot of work getting the bicycle up there. And pretty dangerous on the way down. Mark, uh, I wore a helmet and I actually ended up using it twice when I actually went over the handlebars, you know, the upper steep section called the Canaletta. Yeah. I went over the, twice I went over the handlebars and, you know, head first into the rocks below. I dust myself off, you know, check for broken bones, not finding any. I got back on the bike and continued on down, but it, it could have been, uh, less than wonderful uh, very easily. Well, for sure. And, you know, look, I've, like I said, I've climbed that thing, and, and there was just a whole lot of rock. You know, it's not like a nice, smooth trail that you're riding down. I mean, there's just big boulders and sharp rocks. And, and then as you get down a little bit further, uh, I'm thinking under 
like 19, 18,000 feet. It's just like a big scree field coming down, right, on that on the other side. And, and it's just, you know, just for anybody, it's like every step you take, you know, you move a lot of rocks going down. It's almost like moonwalking going down the <laughs> hill. I mean, it's just not sturdy surface at all. So I can't imagine what that would be like on a mountain bike. It was actually kind of fun that I got the hang of it. Uh, actually, I put my jacket, uh, I posted it, uh, last year was at the back rack on the bike. I had a, a rear uh, rack over my, my back wheel. And I used the jacket that had myself and I sat so far back that it enabled me to ride down that steep hill without flipping over and doing somersaults. And I actually put my, my sternum was on the seat itself. So I was way back. My weight was way over the back wheel. And I would run it out for a bit on the, once I got to the street, actually after I got out of the boulders of the Camaletta, uh, once I got out of the boulder field, I was on street, which is just small rocks and gravel. And then I could just hit the brake, my rear brake hard, drop one of my feet, my inside foot on the corner, and I could do a big fishtail turn and then head off in another direction. And that was really fun once I, I figured out how to bicycle down street. I just, I did lots of fishtail turns all the way down the mountain. <laughs> that just sounds like a tremendous amount of work. So let's talk about another thing that you did. You might have been the first guy to do this as well, and that was to paraglide off Vincent Matip, which is in Antarctica, and Elbrus, which I've done in Russia. So again, where's this stuff coming from? I mean, are you reading a book? Is there somebody that inspired you, or you just woke up one night and said, hey, I want to paraglide off one of the world's tallest mountains for Elbrus and certainly in Vincent and Antarctica? I mean, where did that come from? <laughs> and another mixing of, of, of my pleasures, my passions, I got into paragliding very early in the sport back in the uh, mid-80s. And uh, the reason I got into it was it seemed like it's so much damage on your knees coming down, especially with big packs on. I figured, like, if I could just slide down these mountains instead of walking down, it would be, you know, climax on top of other climax. You make the summit. And then you inflate and fly down. What could be more fun than that? So uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to fly off the top of Denali, the top of Europe, uh, Mount Elbrus, the top of Antarctica, and uh, the top of uh, Australia as well. I'm looking forward uh, to mixing more of that. Now that I'm a little bit older, I suddenly realize that, you know, my son's grown and I don't have to worry about him not having a flow. I'm thinking that I really... Uh, want to get back out there and do things that are a little more crazy than I was for, for many years. It's about 20 years there. I've just kind of reeled it in uh, make sure that that I that my son had a, a father. Uh, but now I'm thinking like, you know, I'm short. Might as well enjoy it. So I've got a new paraglider that's going to be here next week. And uh, it's built for high altitude. And I want to, want to finish off uh, not like climbing to the top with the paraglide, but then flying off all the seven summits. I've done four right now, so I've got three more to do. And uh, if I should succeed, look for a book coming out, uh, authored by myself. It'll be called The Seven Plummets. Love that. I love that. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I like I said, I still got Vincent and I got Everest on the radar, and they're coming up in the next year and a half. 
you know, off Everest, maybe I can do that one with you. I'll just jump on it. We'll do a double paraglide. I'll jump on your back and we can tandem down and, you know, probably back to Kathmandu having a beer, you know, like the next night. That, that was, that's, that's the way you, you have to take it easy too. You have to clean up the facility. It's the hitting you at the climb, and then you get to celebrate the knees and the ass because you're down in the in the tea house or in the tavern. You know, I mean, it's it's it's. <laughs> However, uh, it is a little bit risky, and uh, I'm, I'm starting to take lessons again. Even though I used to teach, I'm going back to to get lessons just to make sure that my technique is impeccable, so that I can do this uh, with a certain amount of safety. Well, I would be concerned, you know, you get to the top of Everest, and like you said, you come up from the south side, and that's coming through uh, Nepal, and then you jump off Everest, and you're in the jet stream, and you end up in Italy or someplace, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if you like the tandem with me, Mark, we'll do it. We'll make a case, and we'll tandem off of Everest. Yeah, I know. Let's let's uh, let's talk further about that. I, I I'm starting to like this idea. You know, your most of the accidents that happen happen on the way down. So why not just jump off and and fly? You know, you don't have to worry about Hillary Step and all those things. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> There's no no Kubo ice hole to go through. No, no, no. That's, well, that's, that's, yeah, well, maybe we can do a zip line. One of the two. Hey, so listen, Vern. Uh, where can people find you? Hello, I'm online, uh, on the website called VernChaos.com. Uh, my book's out there, uh, 70 Summits. You can get that at, uh, on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can, uh, you can get it on Kindle. So that's out there. And I work it up on a sense. If somebody wants to go on a particular climb, especially if you're into the 70 Summits, uh, I'm available. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, listen, Vern, you know, it was a, it was a treat and a pleasure to meet you on the mountain at 14,000 feet on Denali. You know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to connect and I asked you if you'd do me the honor of being on the, on the podcast and said, of course, and you, uh, stayed true to your word. And so I reached out to you and then here we are. So, you know, you've got a fascinating life. You've got a life of purpose and passion. And something that um, everybody should aspire to, not necessarily be a mountain climber if they don't want to, if that's not their passion, but to go after the, the things that they love. And, and I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Okay, buddy. Take care. So, again, I appreciate it. Have a great day. See you in the mountains. Hey, and thank you so much for listening to the Find Your Summit podcast. We are so glad to have you along for this journey. And if you enjoy the show, please tell a friend, share it on iTunes, spread it to the planet. We're looking to broadcast this to every person that is out there because, as you know, everybody has their own summit that they're going after. Okay, if you're looking to follow my journey, you can find that through my social links on markpattisonnfl.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-K, Pattison, P-A-T-T-I-S-O-N, NFL.com. So, until the next podcast, just remember, clear eyes, full hearts, and remember, it takes a little more to make a champion, so make it happen. Thank you. Bye.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.